This is the Iron Workers Rising podcast, standing with you to fight for workers' rights everywhere. Welcome to our regular segment we call Irons in the Fire, where we keep you up to date on what's new and changing within our organization and around the world. Here's a shout out of support to Iron Workers Organizing at Sureline Construction, Kenton, Delaware, South Coast Iron, La Habra, California, Black Iron Reinforcing, Las Vegas, Nevada, KBL Reinforcing Incorporated, Las Vegas, Nevada, and many more to come. Stay strong, stay together, and you'll win this fight for a better future for you and your families. The Iron Workers Union is behind you all the way, and you have strong support from your communities and other union brothers and sisters. Stay strong. The company will try to divide you and scare you, but they are the ones who are scared. You have the power together to make them come to the table and bargain in good faith. We'd also like to add a message of support for the workers at G&D Integrated Manufacturing of Morton, Illinois. The retaliatory layoff of the workers at this facility is the latest attack by the company on its union workers. This owner is in the wrong and the 140 plus unfair labor practices filed against him suggests his absolute negligence of our federal labor laws. The Iron Workers Union stands with you in this fight until justice is served. Lastly, a special thanks to our affiliate, the Labor Radio Podcast Network. You can find them at www.laborradionetwork.org, where you can find our podcast as well as other great podcasts like the 141 Report. Now back to our show. Good day and welcome. We're your hosts, Anna Woodbury. And Ron Gray. We are back again with our guests, Rich Rowe and Charlie McAllister. This episode will be focusing on the history of organizing and why labor unions are still relevant today. We'll explore the past and look to the future. Rich, why don't you kick off this episode by telling us about the history of organizing for the iron workers? Throughout the beginning of our union, and especially, you know, the way I talked about it with the innovation of structural steel and how iron workers were able to travel from city to city, talk to each other, and eventually found our international association in Pittsburgh. We were an organizing union and continued to organize, especially the Roosevelt administration. We pretty much got the green light. You know, our, our union continued to grow. After World War II, the building trades unions, you know, and, and we're no exception, pretty much had everything organized that we wanted. And what we didn't have, as far as jurisdiction goes, was stuff we didn't care about. We had all the big, we had the bridges, the structural steel, the powerhouses, the big manufacturing plants, the high rises. We had it all. Our union, not unlike all the other building trades unions, at this time of World War II, they stopped organizing and they closed the doors. The membership felt yep. we had worked hard for this. We won the war. We organized our craft. And now we want this for our sons. And they close the doors and you don't get in unless you got the same last name or unless you got somebody backing. And they become very clannish. They don't want to expand their membership anymore. They want to keep their membership working. They would rather put people on permit when they're busy and then let them go when things slow down so they can keep their core membership, all their families to keep them working. So unions, you know, building trades unions in particular stay artificially small compared to the amount of work they have. Booms and busts always happen in our industry. They want to make sure that during busts, all of their core membership stays working. So it was a big mistake that they made. 1964 with the Civil Rights Act, President Johnson pretty much forces all the unions, all employers, to take a second look at themselves and make sure that they're not discriminating against people for any reason. And the unions are pretty much in the same boat. And when employers start calling the union halls saying, hey, send me six guys, two of them have to be minorities, you know, it's in my contract. And the unions, they look at each other and they're like, we don't have any minorities, you know, and they have to start programs 
to assimilate. The iron workers started the National Iron Workers Employers Training Program uh, to quickly assimilate minorities into iron worker locals throughout the country. And uh, in my particular local, uh, it was like a separate apprenticeship because when I started, the apprenticeship was limited to people 30 years old and younger. If you're over 30, you couldn't get into the apprenticeship. Whereas this, the National Iron Workers Employers Training Program didn't discriminate against anybody for age at all. So many of the applicants were African-Americans and uh, Latino guys who, uh, and this is primarily men at this time, who uh, had worked in the trades as laborers or maybe one of the other trades and they wanted to become iron workers. So they got into this program and they, they were assimilated into the program. And it was shortly after it was started that the first woman in my local came in and then the woman had been coming in regularly ever since. But uh, the way Wade started was to assimilate primarily African-Americans and uh, Latinos into uh, into the iron workers. And all the other trades were pretty much forced to do the same thing, you know, to open their doors and to, um, this is when they started giving apprenticeship tests instead of having, you know, going into the hall and saying, Joe sent me. Now you had to take a test and it was proctored by an independent party and it become became much fairer for everybody, you know, to get into the building trades. It is somewhat of a shame that the Iron Workers Union back then wanted to stay artificially small and typical with all unions. You needed to, some sort of connection to get a, your union card. Um, you mentioned this all changed with the Civil Rights Act where all unions needed to add minorities to their membership, which takes us to our next question. Charlie is a staunch advocate and activist for civil rights. What can you tell us about the issues for people of color and women in the building trades? I came out of the civil rights movement and did a lot of hitchhiking in a lot of different parts of the world across Africa twice. Very interested in African history, African-American people and culture, as well as the culture of work of all, everybody. And also very interested in Eastern Europeans, having hitchhiked through Eastern Europe when it was behind the Iron Curtain and, and really fascinated by the incredibly convoluted history which we're seeing play out right now in the Ukraine Polish border, et cetera. But when I would teach in black classes, I would try to explain to them, I'm always trying to find the midpoint and to make, help the two sides ex understand each other. But when I would be speaking to the blacks, I'd talk about the ethnic roots and how here in Pittsburgh, anyway, all the plumbers were um, Pat or Mike. Uh, iron workers were basically German and Irish. But then in after World War II, the Slavs broke in and Nick Stepanovich was the head of the iron workers for a while, head of the Building Trades Council here, the last of two fists organizers. I mean, he has hands that were literally twice the size of mine. And the guy, one of those classic tough guys, but he, if you see Building Pittsburgh, you'll see his tribute, his beautiful tribute to Nate Smith, who was the only black, he had gotten into the operating engineers because of a heavyweight bout between Ezard Charles, can't remember who he fought, at the only heavyweight bout fought in Pittsburgh at Forbes Field, and Nate Smith was a boxer, fought several hundred formal fights and a lot of other fights in back alleys and places, and Nate had fought in the pre-card, and he had four tickets, ringside tickets for the heavyweight championship, and he had made contact with the operating engineers prior to this, was interested in it, he traded his four tickets for a union card. And he then went Black Monday in the late 60s and the uprising of the blacks here and really terrific fights. I mean, uh, for around Three River Stadium, a confrontation on the on the bridge leading to the stadium uh, with the police and many, many arrested and beaten up, particularly around the U.S. Steel Building, whereas Nick Stepanovich said, and I kept it in the video and I got very criticized by some of the locals, especially the IBW, who 
didn't want to show it because of what Nick said. He said, we was up on the, the iron there throwing nuts and bolts on the heads of the coloreds because they were demonstrating for the job. And I know from some black people that rifles were fired from the Hill District at the U.S. Steel Building. Not an attempt to kill them, but to send some warnings. I think on both sides, <laughs> those were what were being done. Uh, but Nick became the champion of blacks. And he said, after World War II, I came in, there were hardly any Slavs in the built in the iron workers. And he said, I had to fight my way in with the fists. And he said, Nate Smith is a guy who's fought all his life for what's right. And I admire him. And when, and so he became, he called himself the godfather of the blacks in the Pittsburgh local. And on his retirement, the centerfold was Nick Stepanovich and uh, Nate Smith in boxer shorts with their arms around each other. We need more stories like that. Those are the kind of stories that need to be need to be remembered. We need to break down these barriers. We need to make it comprehensible where people are coming from. I mean, I'm a deep believer in Martin Luther King. It's not the color of the skin, it's the content of the character. And the black folk obviously are the tip of the spear in progressive legislation in, in this country. And the labor movement needs to be allied with it needs to learn from the civil rights movement, the nonviolent techniques. I know the coal miners finally did at Pittston. They adopted the nonviolent technique. They were very helpful, and we have a lot to learn from each other. Unfortunately, the whole system is kind of top-down, old white men or whatever, uh, and certainly the issue of women in the trades is extremely important. I did a lot of interviewing with women, tried to get their stories out there. Some of them had an extremely tough time, but there were incredibly great stories too, of really advancing and of decent men stepping forward and running interference. And, and when these women got harassed, stepping in and facing down uh, the people who were doing the harassment. Those are the kind of stories that desperately need told. And it's why labor history is so important. We need, you know, not only the bad stories, which is the, often what the media will try to, it's about all they know, but we need those stories of solidarity, of reaching across racial, ethnic, gender lines and treating people as human beings with human rights. Yeah, I definitely agree, Charlie. It's so great that you work to include all those stories in there. If folks haven't seen Building Pittsburgh, you can find it on YouTube from the Battle of Homestead Foundation. Uh, it's a really great overview of the history of labor and labor unions in Pittsburgh. If we don't grapple with the past, we can't ever do any better, right? Absolutely. If you don't know where you came from, you'll never know where you're going. History should not be a mystery. It's one teacher always said to me. <laughs> there are patterns out there that keep repeating. <laughs> exactly. Charlie, you mentioned the barriers for people of color and women which is a prelude to our next question. One of the things that we see in the news are stories about racial and gender pay gaps. Our question is related to how collective bargaining agreements eliminate those pay gaps. Our members, as well as other union members, can understand this. But for the non-union workers or those thinking about organizing, can you explain what a collective bargaining agreement does to solve the issues of pay inequality? I could take that. I was on several negotiating committees. In every contract I, I ever negotiated, there's no set asides or stipulations that someone makes less money than somebody else because of any condition, race, color, creed, sex. We're all iron workers. And in our contract, we all get paid the same hourly rate. You know, foreman gets a little more. General foreman gets a little more. But it's all it's all spelled out in the contract. And it doesn't say that the, a woman is going to get less. It doesn't say that a minority is going to get less. It, it's not 
those words aren't even in a union contract. So when you're an employer and you sign a contract with us and you hire iron workers, you get a highly skilled individual that more than likely has served an apprenticeship or at least has passed a test. Every local I know of continually does journeyman upgrading, uh, certifying welders, OSHA, 10-hour, 40-hour OSHA. When you hire a union iron worker, you get a highly skilled, quality product that's going to come out and do the job and make you money. It doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman, black, brown, what color. It, it just doesn't matter. You you get highly skilled worker that's trained and pretty much guaranteed that you're going to get what you pay for. You know, if you're a contractor using union labor. And I'll throw something in there is that the pay gap, the gender gap, especially, or and the racial gap, I totally agree. I mean, this is one way that people from the bottom can set standards and wages and have a real input into how things are structured. There was a great little story that I found in a newspaper about guys at the Duquesne Club, which is where, as John Kennedy once said, three men around a table set world market prices in metals. And at the Duquesne Club, everybody was laughing about the confrontation between the blacks and the building trades. They thought it was great. It was the talk of the extremely wealthy, the creme de la creme of Pittsburgh corporate leadership, and they were enjoying the show. So that's a lesson. <laughs> if we want to reduce inequality, we want to have fairness, we have to understand that people are constantly trying to divide us and we've got to ignore it or we've got to fight back against it. We've got to reach across. We've got to try to understand where the other working people are coming from, why they have differences with us and try to accommodate and understand it as best we can. I see two really important takeaways from what you both said. Uh, Rich, you stress that a union contract means equal pay for equal work, regardless of race and gender. Charlie brought up a very strong point about division and how corporate leadership benefits from this division among workers. They know it'll keep us from organizing and realizing our power. Do you have any additional comments on that, Charlie? There's a young lady, I get a lot of calls from different people writing their masters and doctorate theses. One of one recently was on the, 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 the wage benefits of being white, which she was trying to get into. And she had family connections here in Pittsburgh to the pile drivers union. And she talked to a story that her uncle had told was he went for a job and he was told that they couldn't give him the job because they were being forced to hire women and blacks. And she said, is that, is that possible that they were actually really doing that or are they just giving this guy a story? I said, well, it happened to me twice as a machinist going to the Clarton Works uh, to work in the Coke ovens. Thank God I didn't get it. And uh, to work at Gulf Oil Research Machine Shop. Both places, the guy when got in, they sat back in their chair and lit up their cigarette and laughed and said, well, well, buddy, you're just in here for window dressing. We've got to hire some blacks and women. So we just put the ad in the paper and you 15 white guys out there are just your, your extras. So both of them did this to me. And it was, a it, you know, the people on the top love divisions at the bottom. You know, I, I couldn't have said it better, um, Charlie. You said the people on the top love divisions on the bottom. I think oh. we've seen that in organizing drive after organizing drive. Any, any sure. bit of division that the employer knows about, they'll pick up on and use to, to yep. crush that organizing drive. It's the nature of imperialism. <laughs>
Capitalism and domination. That's how, you know, how do you think empires survive is by pitting, picking one ethnic group as the policemen and the other as the dirt workers. You mentioned the, the pile drivers. I, I feel like I got to tell a little story here. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Donnie Unitas was a pile driver for a while before he uh, got called to Baltimore to try out for the team after the Steelers wouldn't take him. You know, pile driving work initially was wood when we were building all the piers and everything, but it, it, it changed to steel pilings. And the pier builders, you know, the ones who were using the most pile drivers, they hired iron workers because iron workers knew how to rig, how to handle a steel, how to burn, how to weld, and they were hiring iron workers. And eventually this work kind of fell to the iron workers, where in 1914, the iron workers actually put the pile drivers in their title. It was at this convention where they added ornamental iron workers to the official title, and they added pile drivers. So the name of the association was the International Association of Bridge Structural Ornamental Iron Workers and Pile Drivers. The AFL told us, because the carpenters were a much larger union, had much more influence in the AFL-CIO, or the AFL back then. The AFL told us that we had to take pile drivers out. And we <laughs> said, no, we're not going to do that. You know, we're, we're doing most of the work, and uh, we're not taking that title out. We represent these workers. So the AFL suspended the iron workers. They, they threw us out of the AFL. So there was a period of time uh-huh. there, 1914, 1915, where the iron workers were out of the AFL. And uh, in order to get back in, we pretty much had to drop the title pile drivers and pile driving work. Even though anybody who looks at pile driving work, they see it's steel. <laughs> it looks like iron work. It smells like iron work, but those guys are carpenters. <laughs> yeah. And I always wondered why. Thank well, you. That's why. <laughs> you know, something that I've heard time and time again, and I'm sure you all have as well from folks that don't support unions or organizing is something along the lines of um, unions had a place at one point in time. They did a lot of good things in the past, but we really don't need them anymore. You know, for anyone out there unfamiliar with organized labor, how would you describe to them, you know, what is a union? Why should workers today care? Why is it important to learn this history? And why is it important to get involved with uh, organizing work or join a union? I could, I could jump in here. When I teach my history class, I teach it to apprentices now. I used to teach it to apprentice instructors, but now I teach it, you know, strictly to apprentices. And, you know, one of, one of the points I drive home to them is that the union is not the business manager and the business agents. It's not the building. I says, that could all go away tomorrow. I say the union is you. You are the union. The union is an idea, you know, and it's about sticking together for a common cause. And it doesn't matter who the leadership of a union is, what kind of building you have, what kind of training facility you have. It's all good. It's all showing that we're on the right track, that we're doing the right thing. But that is not the union. The union is the members. And, you know, I try to instill that in them, you know, that, uh, that you know, when, when they're done with my class, the idea of my class is that everything they learn in their apprenticeship is going to teach them how to be a skilled tradesmen. They learn how to burn, weld, do layout, rig, work safe, get the job done, come home at the end of the day, and that's going to keep them employed and then they're going to earn a living. But if they want to enjoy the standard of living they have with pension plans, health care plans, you know, if they want to enjoy these things, they have to have a union. They have to stick together and they have to understand that they can't look at the leadership to provide for them. Like expect that. I, I try to instill them that, that you are the union that you're the ones, that you're tomorrow's leaders, but all of us 
are in the union. We're all the same boat. We all have to stick together. And by sticking together, yeah, we I, can add, I mean, that's exactly right. And boy, I would, can we bottle you and pass you around to all the unions? I'm telling you, I mean, that's the essential message. I mean, it isn't, you're absolutely right. It isn't the, uh, you know, the, the people down at the hall that are sitting behind desks for a while, but it's what you carry in your heart. That's really what it's about. On the shop floor at Union Switch and Signal, when there'd be a crisis and uh, workers would walk away from their machines and gather around me. If that isn't the experience of pure democracy, when your constituency is looking you in the eye and got hammers in their hand, there isn't any other. It's really an incredibly powerful thing. And when you come to some consensus there, feeling together, uh, acting together, concerted activity, it's really, it's the essence of what it's all about. And it's incredibly important when you have dangerous jobs. It's important for everybody, though, to have a stake, to walk through that door and not be afraid. Uh, you know, that I always loved my friend Stoughton Lind. He said, you leave the, cons- the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, in the glove compartment of your car when you walk through the office store or the factory gate or the workplace, the non-union workplace. Those Bill of Rights only operate against the government. They don't operate against private property, private interests, private power. To do that in this country, you have to organize, to have a say, have a voice, and we need, and I hope we talk about future directions because it's extremely important, I think, to the iron workers and uh, to all, to everybody, that workers, all of the workforce have some deeper say and involvement in the direction of this country and the direction of investment, the direction of capital, aside from obviously a fair tax system that actually taxes these. I can't think of a good word to even say, but at any rate, the inequality is so distorting everything, twisting the minds of our people. It's doing its best to divide it on every level. We need democracy from below. We need people to rise up and get to know each other and reach across class and gender and racial and ethnic lines. Thanks, Rich and Charlie. I couldn't have said that better myself. It is important to understand that you are the union. You are part of that collective group that makes change. Not the officers, not the representatives, but the members of the collective bargaining group. Without that concerted activity of these members, there would be no change. And we know that's what companies and corporations would prefer that workers stay divided so they can maintain control and defeat organized labor. That brings us to the next question, which is, do either of you have any interesting historical references where the iron workers or other unions showed their strength and resilience? I want to tell you a terrific uh, organizing story with the ironwork. After World War One, and primarily the Bolshevik Revolution, American capitalists were freaked out that what happened yeah. in Russia could happen here. And our country goes into a red scare. And unions are painted with a red paintbrush. The Bolshevik Revolution started with the Soviets, which are workers' councils or labor unions in Russia. So they were worried that, you know, a similar thing could happen here where all wealth is going to be confiscated and all the billionaires are going to be executed. And, you know, and there really was a big scare in this country. In 1921, a group of employers got together and they put together something called the American Plan. And it was their plan for once and for all, get rid of unions. 
unions. And every yep. union member, member was painted with a red paintbrush. If you're in a union, this is the American plan. You're a union guy, you're un-American. So it was, it was a very, very hard time for union members in 1921. Our general president, Patty Morin, general president of the Iron Workers, he responded to this by organizing New York City. And he told all of his members, he says, I want everybody to go to work for non-union contract. Once you're up there mm. on the iron, he says, every one of you <laughs> is an organizer. Now, when you're an iron worker and you go out on a job, it's your first day on a job, you know, for you guys that are listening that are iron workers and you meet a guy for the first time and he's your partner, you talk. What neighborhood are you from? Da -da -da -da. Who do you know? Do you know this guy? Do you know that guy? You tell jokes because this guy, his life and your life kind of depend on each other, even though you just met. You got to watch out for each other if you're partners and you're bolting up or whatever on the iron. So all these union iron workers, they go to work for these non-union contractors and they're talking to their part. You know, when I work union, it's not like this. You know, we got nets. When I work union, you get a little bit of a coffee break. You know, when I work union, when I work union, and every member in that area became a union organizer. So instead of a local hiring one or two guys to go out and be organizers and do top-down yeah. organizing, trying to sign up the contractor. Now you got everybody in that particular area doing bottom-up organizing right on the job site with the guy that they're working with. And the guy is just like you. He's doing the same job as you. One guy has it better when he works union, and he's spreading the word. I thought that was the most brilliant thing that I ever yeah. heard come out of our international and it happened in 1921. Hey, it was a centennial way just a little bit past right. this time I, to restart. I never, I, I, I never thought of that. To tell you the truth, but yeah, yes, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> it's worth celebrating. Yeah, the whole country is having this red scare, and, and you know the media controlled by corporate America right. at the time. When the whole country is taking this radical swing to the right. They, they just elected Warren G. Harding and, uh, right. you know, the, the whole country is, you know, really taking a radical hard swing to the right. And our general president, Patty Morin, stands up and says, oh, yeah, this is what we're going to do. Andy Johnson of the IBEW, he was the 92-year-old that uh, was part of building Pittsburgh. And he tells the story of the American plan. He was 16 years old, just starting out as an apprentice. 1617. And uh, what an inspiration that whole, it went for over a year, almost two years strike. Uh, they, they locked out the building trades here in Pittsburgh. And one contractor, Sergeant Electric, stayed with the union and refused because the guy that ran Sergeant had been beaten up and thrown out of uh, JNL Steel for sitting around at lunchtime and mentioning and talking union to his fellow workers. And he was thrown into the streets and they beat him and broke his fingers. And uh, he vowed he he would never, he would always hire union people. And during that strike, that Sergeant Electric became the central, the most important electrical company in Pittsburgh because of the loyalty that he, Sergeant, organized and helped feed the, the union. And the union ever since has fed Sergeant Electric as kind of the premier uh, contractor in town. Thank you, Charlie, for highlighting that really important history. You know, I think we as members of the Iron Workers Union should be proud of the fact that in 1921, our general president, Patty Moran, uh, thumbed his nose at the American plan by organizing New York City. Uh, I just wanted to elaborate a little bit on the American plan so our listeners understand that this was an anti-union strategy put together by employers in the U.S., including U.S. Steel and members of the National Association of Manufacturing. Um, to, to break unions. Uh, they declared that union activities and those associated with these activities were un-American, uh, made workers sign pledges that they wouldn't join a union, 
refused to negotiate with unions and pursued injunctions and sometimes, like you, like you said, used violence to stop workers from organizing. This is a good segue into our next topic of discussion. So the Iron Workers Union from our founding didn't back down from being an organizing union. The founders knew that the goal of organizing the entire industry had to be at the forefront. What do you see as the main obstacles for achieving that goal today? Well, first of all, the way the laws have been perverted, the way that the the corporate structures and the lawyers and the millions of ways to slow you down and disrupt you have had a terrific impact. But if you look at certainly the 1930s, and I think, you know, we are entering into a period of great turmoil, seems to me. I mean, health scares of real significance, wars that could hopefully, God help us know, uh, but are certainly will have a huge impact. People, I think, are beginning to realize that our very existence on this planet is threatened. So young people, I think those who are conscious and really thinking about this, and as crises deepen, they'll be thinking about it a lot more, which is why it's so important for us elders to at least pass on what we know about things. But they're going to have to turn to mutuality and solidarity and community. And I think that organizing is driven by material conditions. There's no question that a deep economic crisis like the 1930s, it'll be very different. It may be primarily environmental. It may be COVID type thing. And these kinds of things are hitting. It may be war, maybe certainly immigration, people fleeing, a collapsing ecology and warfare are going to cause all kinds of stresses. How do we deal with those things in a humane way, in an open way, and see these people as potential union members? I wrote a letter to the Post-Gazette they wouldn't publish. That's a fair amount of mine, especially recently. And they've turned to the right. But we have a labor shortage. Uh, we have a supply chain problem. The supply chain, the answer to the supply chain is break the chain. Bring it home. This centralization of production in one country or several countries in the Orient and shipping it all over the world is madness from the point of view, on every point of view, environmental especially. We need to break the chains. We need to bring production home. It needs to be localized, not globalized. Uh, And for that, we need skills. We need knowledge. We need people who can work with their hands and their head. And the other is labor shortage. I've been three times to Haiti. There's nobody works harder than poor Haitian people have been the most oppressed and the racists have always tried to destroy that country to make it the proof that a slave revolt can't succeed. I did a lot of traveling and watching those Haitian families come through the Darien Gap, which from Colombia up through Central America on foot, families through some of the worst terrain in the entire world. And they're coming for what? A job, a decent place. We don't have, there's no labor shortage. We need an immigration, a new immigration policy. We need a new industrial policy and we need unionization across the board. Charlie, I couldn't agree with you more. Let's get Rich's take on this as well. Rich, with our labor laws in need of an overhaul, disadvantages in right to work states and the NRB dishing out only slaps on the wrist for blatant disregard of labor laws. We as organizers are fighting with one arm tied behind our backs. What do you think? 
You mentioned uh, labor laws and, and the right to work states, and you know it all comes down to the Taft-Hartley Act. Section 14B had a, a devastating effect on labor, and I mean, if you look at wage rates in right-to-work states compared to non-right-to-work states, you could see a marked difference in, in what the average worker makes. And I mean, there have been attempts to, to appeal not only Taft-Hartley in entirety, but Section 14B specifically, but it's been difficult. And I also have to think that labor made its greatest strides before these labor laws ever existed, these anti-labor laws. And by the time Roosevelt came along, the building trades were pretty well organized before we had any pro-labor yep. legislation. So, I mean, yep. we I think we have to get back to that kind of thinking. And it, it takes membership education. And I mean, not only at the apprentice level, but yeah. even the old timers and locals. Comet, you know, was a terrific program. And I don't know how many members it reached. I know we had some Comet seminars in, in our local and, and trying, but I, I don't know if it made true believers out of, out of enough people. I, I think we're slowly turning the corner where, uh, at least in my local and other locals that I know, that organized members are no longer looked at as second-class citizens, you know, because it used to be if you didn't come through the apprenticeship, you were a backdoor iron worker. I don't think that exists anymore, but I still don't think that the locals have really adopted an organizing local kind of uh, strategy, that, that this is what we're about. We're an organizing union. And I don't think many locals have adopted that yet. Do they organize? Yes. Do they know that they have to and they should? Have they been educated? Is that generation from World War II that was preserving this for our sons, that generation is gone and unions have seen enough that the error of our ways and that we have to organize. But I, I don't see that same kind of zeal like that uh, Patty Moran exhibited in 1921. We got to get back to that kind of organizing. And tough, tough road. And uh, like I say, Patty Moran knew that he couldn't put one or two organizers in each local and uh, expect them to go out and get the job done, that he made every member in New York City an organizer and told him, go to work for the non-union guys and tell them what it's all about. And we also need some changes in labor law, too, in that President Biden talked about it recently, card check or whatever you want to call it. 51% of the workers in a shop or for an employer, if yeah. they sign that union card, that union should have recognition and enter into negotiations, not just start the whole process of an NRB election and everything else that gets bogged down for years and tied up. 51% of the workers, they want a union, they should have recognition and sit down with the union and negotiate. Couldn't agree more, Rich. Another thing that at the International we've called for uh, to aid workers who are organizing is the Joy Silk Doctrine, which if the NLRB brought this rule back, Workers who've already proven a strong, solid majority of them want union representation would be recognized immediately and could just get to work negotiating their first contract. You know, we've seen that the current practice uh, does nothing but allow employers the advantage of time that they just use to stall and build a campaign to suppress workers' rights and voices. Because Joy Silk has been suspended for generations, it's just so much harder than it needs to be or should be to exercise your basic rights as a worker. Uh, Charlie, what are your thoughts? But, but like you say, recognition, if you've got 51% and, and it, it could be very powerful without any recognition at all. I mean, uh, I remember guys at the steel mills uh, after the defeat of the little steel strike 
which you know well in your backyard there at Inland Steel, a guy that was three times president. No, yeah, but the Little Steel Strike uh, was five companies and and Inland was defeated. They went back to work, but when they went back defeated, didn't get the contract that those years until they got the contract in 41, I think, were the best of all because they had gotten themselves completely organized outside and walk back in that mill as a as a unit and that company couldn't do anything without the permission of all and they had wildcats many wildcats all the time with people backing up well there was a problem you didn't file a grievance you you sat down you took care of it and he said that was the absolute essence of unionism and i know my ue when i got there they had never filed grievances they had sit-downs. If it was a minor grievance, it was in that area, but the, they were generally backed by the union. Sometimes you were told to you know, go back to work or whatever, we'll solve this in the meeting or whatever. But there was a lot of democracy on the shop floor. And it's important to have institutionalized protections, but they're not gonna they're not gonna save the future for future generations. It's gonna be self activity from below, nonviolent direct action is to me the answer. Charlie, that is extremely interesting and a strong point that you bring up. Even in defeat, failed attempts create solidarity amongst workers. This is a strong message for all workers not to give up, stick together, work harder for the next time, and you will win. To Rich's earlier point about needing to change our support for organizing our culture, do member education, we're, you know, we're hoping that this podcast, is, this episode is going to be the first in a series of educating members and organizers across our union in this history and in the importance of organizing. So I just want to really thank both of you. It's been a pleasure, this whole conversation. I know I've, I've learned a lot. I feel very reinvigorated for the work ahead. I guess I would like to give each of you a minute or two to share with us any takeaways from this conversation that you have, anything that you, a message you might have for the rank and file of Iron Workers Union, or any closing thoughts? Yeah, I would. If I can encourage my brothers and sisters to start looking into some of the things we've been talking about, pick up a book on labor history. One I've been plugging mm-hmm. lately is called There's Power in a Union by Philip Dre, but uh, there, there's several books out there. Go on Google, labor history, start looking at Amazon or whatever, go into your local bookstore, Barnes and Noble, and pick up a book on labor history. It's going to blow your mind when you start reading about some of these things. I mean, some of these stories will bring you to tears, they'll inspire you, and you will not believe what you're reading, that you are never taught this stuff in school. And, uh, you know, this, our story has been suppressed, and it still is. And once you start, you're not going to stop. And I highly recommend start studying some labor history, and your mind will be blown. I just want to thank you folks uh, at the Ironworkers for uh, giving Rich and I a voice here. And I deeply appreciate it. I think it's so terribly important. I've tried to give most of my second half of my life here to learning labor history and teaching it. But I couldn't agree more that the story needs to get out. The stories are incredible. The elders are important to listen to. And the young people are incredibly important because they're the future. And we've got to support them in every way we can because the world's not getting any easier out there. And we're going to have to stick together to get through it. We're going to have to understand solidarity, compassion, and union. And any of my brothers or sisters out there, or any iron worker, union or non-union, if you're 
come to Chicago and you want to visit Haymarket Square, Waldheim Cemetery, Courthouse, where the execution of the martyrs took place, contact my union, uh, Ironworkers Local 63, 708-344-7727, and they'll put you in contact with me and I can help you out. I'm coming. Okay. (laughs) I'm I'm there. I'm in Florida right now, but I'll be there shortly. I'll be there by May Day. Thank you again. Thank you again, both. It's really been a pleasure. Yes, thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Ironworkers Rising podcast, your Ironworkers network. Please check us out on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and at www.ironworkersrising.org.